You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hello. Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. So since your first socially distant presentation last week, has the Institute been up to much, Chris? Well, in what is, I think you'll agree, very exciting news, the Institute has been nominated for an award. An award? An award, Piper. That's good. Oh, exciting. Oh, well, go on then. What is it? What, what have you been nominated for? It's the Definitely Not Made Up Award for excellence in not making things up. Oh, great. I mean, that's your whole thing. It is, yes. Well done. I mean, is everyone really excited? We are very excited. The proceedings have already generated their share of controversy, though, this year. Because the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast was also nominated. But their nomination just yesterday was rescinded when it was revealed that they actually make up all their so-called facts. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, we've talked about this last week. It's good to have the validation that uh, that you were... You were actually right. So they've, they've been taken off the ballot for that then. So were you in direct competition with them? And, and is that the thing that's meant that you've won? No, uh, there's one other organisation up for a nomination. But um, I think we've got them beat, though. Oh, who's that? It's the Real Institute, whose whole thing is that they're real. Ah. And I feel that we've got them beat because while the only thing they've not made up is themselves, we at the Munchausen Institute have not made up all sorts of things. Yeah. So I feel like we've not made up more than they've not made up. (laughs) Well, congratulations on uh, not making up a lot more than the uh, um, competing... Fucking hell, the competing institute. (laughs) (laughs) And being totally right on and totally real throughout all of your work, not just the existence of yourselves. Do you get a physical award or or is it just a metaphysical concept or does it not exist at all? Well, of course it exists. It's not made up. That's an incredibly good point. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at fact number one, Chris. What's this one? The world's first fast food chain was Roman. Oh, okay. Uh, so we've always been led to believe that the concept of fast food is is like all American. Like the idea of pre-cooked food that can be purchased hot is something that we thought was developed less than 100 years ago by emerging capitalism and a gluttonous United States population. Are we, not, are we now finding out this isn't true? Uh, apparently so, yes. There was a Roman merchant by the name of Arusia Erasmus who set up a stall in Rome selling preheated and pre-boiled soups. Oh, cool. So it really was like fast food as we know it then? Uh, Yes, he even had a name for his stall. Uh, He called it, um, in Latin, it was Erasmus Esserit Velox Sorbitio, which was Hungry Erasmus Speedy Soups. Cool. I mean, it's nice and catchy. I like that. So I'm sure the listener at home will be thinking this is a hugely popular concept across the Western world. Did Hungry Erasmus Speeding Soups take off at all? It was very popular within Rome itself, uh, the very busy residents of what was at the time the centre of the known world were very appreciative of being able to buy preheated and pre-boiled soups. 
one particular general, um, actually liked hungry Erasmus so much that he insisted that Erasmus himself bring his stall along on the general's next campaign. So the, uh, the, the army liked them. They got to take it on the road then, essentially. Uh, yeah, I mean, Erasmus, understandably, was unwilling to leave his profitable stall in the city and move that to the army. So he actually sent his son along. He kept his stall in the city yeah. and sent his, his son along with the army. So that means that um, it actually... I guess I guess if, if he sent his son to take it on the road, that means that it, it was essentially a chain then of sorts. Yeah, it was through the army that the store managed to spread throughout the Roman Empire. It became popular in every place the Roman army conquered. And so there were stalls throughout the empire. I mean, evidence for hungry Erasmus speedy soups has been found as far afield as England and Egypt. Whoa, really? Oh, that's cool. So um so we had we had a speedy soups in England? Um yeah, we did. Well I say we wasn't we because you know we weren't born then, but you know Yeah, I mean we we may be wise beyond our years, but we're not actually A thousand years old, no. No. I mean it, it's it's important for you to clear those things up. Um what was the so what was the evidence of the franchise over here then? It's actually in uh Bath. That's the town of Bath, not just like my bathtub. Right. Thank you. Yes. In the um, the Roman baths in Bath, there's a building that actually has the name of the stall, Erasmus Esserit Velox Orbitio, inscribed above the door. And inside the building was found branded balls, uh, ceramic balls with the name of the, the restaurant, I suppose, engraved on them. And what was originally thought to have been a piece of jewellery, uh, a brooch, but turned out to be a name badge, it read, Salve Aurelia Nomen Meum de Novo Ame Rumpeter Venter Patera, which means, hello, my name is Aurelia. Ask me about a new belly buster ball. <laughs> so, they, so, they had, so they had like a, a menu then. If I was to order a speedy soup, what options would I have? Are there, are there different types then? Well, there was the belly buster ball, obviously. Cool. Presumably, there was a usual kind of thing of like different size, size balls, small, medium, large. In one particular uh, location in what was the city of Edessa, in what is now Turkey, there is evidence of what seems to be a children's meal served in a smaller bowl and sold with a wooden carving of the restaurant's mascot, a stylized version of Erasmus himself. So effectively, a happy meal. Oh wow! Did it have any moving parts, or was it just a uh, just a little carving? It was just a little carving, yeah. Oh, that's really nice. I wonder if you could like collect all of them. Like maybe they came in different colours or something. Uh, they could have done. I mean, the one that was found was pretty beaten up because you know it's like eight hundred years old or so. But I mean, they could have been painted at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, as with a lot of the facts that come in on this podcast, we don't have a lot to go on. So you know, I mean, it could be that there could have been Erasmus mascot. There could have been, um, uh, I don't know, um, uh, his 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 mate Bill. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that common Latin name Bill. Well. Unlike you, I know fuck all Latin, I'm afraid, so I'm going to have to go with Bill. Billius? Julius Caesar and his best mate, Bill. Yes. 
<laughs> well, Julius. Julius would have been fine. I could have said Julius, <laughs> couldn't I? It's too late for that now, Piper. Oh, no. <laughs> and they could have gone on, on, a, on a adventures and there could have been stories. Maybe, maybe, maybe they had some, some sort of um, advertising. You know, they might have had some Erasmus advertising featuring all the little mascots. They might have even had a finger puppet show. You never know. It could well have had a finger puppet show. Well, well, that concept obviously excites me greatly. So obviously, they had this was quite a popular thing at the time, and as you say, it came over to England. So was it was it always different types and different sizes of soup, or did they actually go beyond soup and and you know go into uh, whatever other things they had at the time? Presumably not burgers. Yeah, um, but not burgers, as you say. Um, piecing together evidence from the different sites that have been found across the former Roman Empire. Uh, there is evidence that the restaurant experimented with uh, bouillons, bisques, borscht, broths, chowders, cockaliki, consommes, gazpacho, goulash, gumbo, puree, ramen, snurt, stew, stock, like de velite and vichyssoise. Right, Chris, I think weren't all of those just soups? Well, it may seem so to a layperson like yourself, Piper, but if there are any sorbitologists listening, I'm sure they're laughing their heads off at your soup-based ignorance. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that, Chris. Um, so it sounds like absolutely they branched out to a massive smorgasbord of different culinary delights, obviously. So let's move on to fact number two. What's this one, Chris? This one is decapitation was considered a cure for the Black Death. Right. So uh, obviously the Black Death was completely horrible on its own, but the so-called cures from the time are borderline torture. I don't know if the listener at home has, has studied the Black Death in school, but it's horrific aside from the actual Black Death. At the time they had like things like bloodletting to sitting in a sewer pipe for days on end. Uh, the remedies doled out to victims of the plague were often less desirable than the symptoms of the illness itself. In fact, and I, I hope you'll forgive me for being a little bit academic on this one, Chris, but um, uh, uh, Jean Frassard wrote in his Chronicles in 1380 of the doctors treating the disease, doctors need three qualifications, to be able to lie and not get caught, to pretend to be honest, and to cause death without Guilt. So it sounds like this cure might be fulfilling the critics' damning praise here. What what the hell was going on, Chris? So French doctor Philippe Regnaud, he was rather astute. He noticed that the symptoms of bubonic plague routinely ceased after death, and he wondered if he could induce death as a way of curing the plague and then resuscitate the patient. I mean, yeah, I I, I can totally see how he got to that conclusion, but it's obviously very flawed logic. How did he go about it then? So as medical knowledge was, you know, like much inferior back then, I mean, this is the, what, 14th century, uh, the only way Regnaud could think of to carry out his procedure was to behead his patients and then attempt to reattach their heads before they died. Now, obviously, this didn't go very well because death usually occurs within two or three seconds of decapitation. And as hard as he tried, Arrhenio simply couldn't stitch that fast. 
Oh, no. So not only did they have to deal with the Black Death, they had to deal with Renyo killing a bunch of people. Yeah, well, he only... I say only. He killed uh, seven people trying to perfect this procedure. He probably would have killed more, but he himself ended up dying of the plague, presumably from hanging around other people who had it. Right, and he didn't try killing himself and stitching himself back together to cure the plague then? Uh, no, he um, he didn't try and cut his own head off and then try and stitch it back on, no. He's not Sally from The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> no. But, you know, I wouldn't have expected worse from him, to be honest. <laughs> Obviously, this, this was one of many practices uh, where doctors tried and completely failed to cure the Black Death. I mean, it's, it's fairly well known that there wasn't wasn't actually a cure developed at all throughout the entire time of the bubonic plague uh, being in existence. But I, I think people were hopeful at the time that anything would work. So we're, we're, his, um, his patients that, uh, I know he killed seven people, but were they, were they willing participants? Yes and no. They were all patients in his care, but what little ethics Renaud had uh, led him to only attempt this particular procedure on those in the final stages of the disease, uh, which was usually categorised by delirium and sometimes a coma. Right. So they had, you know, submitted themselves to his care, but they weren't at that point in any state to uh, give their consent to having their heads chopped off. So, in essence, is it possible that he actually waited that long because he knew they couldn't give their consent? (laughs) I mean... Yes, um, um, it's also possible, as I said, that um, the ethics that he had um, might have led him to like wait until the last possible point where they were going to die anyway to try this. Right, yeah. I mean, your interpretation is just as good as mine there. Just one paints him as, you know, a barely ethical doctor and the other one paints him as a not ethical doctor at all. So obviously he died after trying this seven times and it not working. And obviously he died of the plague himself. But did anyone continue the practice at all? Did it, did anyone continue his research? Um, did anyone succeed at all after his death? Uh, not really, no. I mean, as I said, it's known that death occurs very, very quickly after the head is chopped off. So, I mean, without... I don't know, like the fastest robot arm in the West, you wouldn't be able to really attach somebody's head quickly enough. There is the apocryphal story of a sultan who was accidentally beheaded and his doctors attempted to reattach his head and claimed to have succeeded with the sultan going on to rule for another 10 years or so. But it was later revealed that there was a kind of weekend at Bernie scenario going on. Would you like to explain the Weekend at Bernie's scenario? Uh, the Weekend at Bernie's is a film in which somebody tries to make out that the resident of a house is still alive by like moving their corpse around on ropes and stuff. So, so yes, so it's, it's, it's entirely likely that that actually wasn't the case and, and that this just generally wasn't successful. I mean, that's not really a surprising conclusion. <laughs> so obviously this didn't work for the Black Death. But decapitation, Chris, has it ever been used to cure any other diseases? Uh, Well, going back to the French, in the late 18th century, the French routinely used decapitation 
as a cure for the pernicious disease known as aristocracy. Right. And what was the best method of uh, decapitation for for this uh, horrible affliction? Uh, They built a machine called the guillotine. That's brilliant. Um, so, so was this actually a success then? Yeah, um, they completely got rid of their aristocracy and became a republic. Let's have a look at fact number three. What's it gonna be, Chris? So, opponents of women's suffrage in the USA set up fake kitchens outside polling stations in an effort to distract women from voting. Oh, OK. Let's unpack this a little bit. <laughs> so at the uh, turn of the 20th century, the suffragette movement was started to protest the fact that women weren't allowed to vote, as we all who have listened in school will know. After the end of the First World War, women in the US were finally granted that right, but it was considered hugely controversial and was opposed by a huge number of people. So <laughs> whose idea was it to set up these distractions, Chris? This was the men's rights group, male. That's men against lady enfranchisement. They set up these fake kitchens during the 1920 presidential election, the first presidential election that women were allowed to vote in. Right, okay. So, I mean, yeah, society views very women very differently now to back in the early 1900s, obviously. So why was this expected to work against prospective women voters? Well, as you say, views on women have changed a lot. Back then, it was very much the idea that women belonged either in the kitchen or looking after children. And so it was thought that these fake kitchens would distract the prospective voters with the allure of cooking. And in doing so, the women would entirely forget about their hard-earned right to participate in the democratic process. Oh, okay. So these... What, what did we say they were? This men's rights group, the men against lady enfranchisement. Yeah. They thought that women would be just be so overcome by the urge to cook, they'd forego their rights. Uh, yeah, um, and some uh, male members even went as far as putting like actual live babies inside these fake kitchens to um, enhance their appeal to the, uh, the fairer sex. Okay, right. So, well, aside from the obvious dangers and implications there, maybe maybe even, I don't know, human rights issues involved with just (laughs) abandoning a baby in a mock kitchen to see what had happened to women passing by. I'm guessing this didn't work? No, um, it didn't. In fact, many women after voting posed for the press inside these fake kitchens and uh, the newspapers gave the photos captions like, frying up freedom. Okay, so, uh, I mean, obviously this isn't surprising to our modern ears that uh, women actually have not only a brain, but a sense of humour, which is fantastic to hear, even that, that back then they were, they were protesting in, in, in quite, uh, uh, quite tongue-in-cheek ways um, to, to, to these, uh, well, sort of counter-protesting against these uh, men against lady enfranchisement people. <laughs> so... Did the, uh, as you said, males come up with any further ways to thwart the women voters? Or was it all just kitchen-based? It was mostly kitchen-based. Though one male member dressed up as a baby and loudly declared to uh, passing women voters that he'd done a whoopsie and his diaper needed changing. 
Oh wow! So, uh, so I mean, obviously the 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 kitchen idea and uh, leaving a real baby in the kitchen didn't work. Did uh, did this approach of uh, of dressing up like a baby to fool the women did that work? You know what, Piper? It didn't. And the man himself was actually arrested for public indecency. I feel like that's probably fair. <laughs> I think so. Yes. So the the uh, the men's rights group that uh, that, that that are responsible for all this. Uh, abhorrent almost almost dumbing down of women's intelligence in order to try and stop them voting did they disband or did they continue on to uh, uh, to terrorize women with um, infant cosplay <laughs> um a men against lady enfranchisement disbanded but other related groups have uh, resurrected the acronym over the years so when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was advocating against employment discrimination in the 1970s, there was the similarly named Men Against Lady Employment. Uh, more recently, during the abortion debates in America of, of the past few years, there was Men Against Abortion Like Everywhere. Oh, right. With um against in brackets so as not to break up the acronym. Yeah, yeah, of course. So they'd they'd want to keep that that acronym in place in order to sort of continue the legacy, I guess. And I guess so. If that's actually uh, right up to the minute, they're 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 still using that acronym. Um, I'm guessing we, you know, if we ever see the acronym uppercase or lowercase around newspapers in in modern days, uh, um, with people standing up to standing against women, we can only assume that they are of the same or similar mindset of the original idiots of the uh, post-suffrage America. Um, yeah, and I think it's fair to say if you see the word male written anywhere, it's because some man's been a twat. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what we can take away from this. So there are a number of social groups that many think shouldn't be allowed to vote. Are there more modern examples of this sort of distraction technique that we've seen before? There's a few, yeah. During the struggle for uh, black voting rights in the American South in the 1960s, opponents of civil rights tried to distract black people from voting by offering fried chicken and white women outside polling stations. Uh, more recently, during the 2016 presidential election, Trump supporters tried to stop educated Americans voting by handing out vegan fair trade lattes and Wes Anderson DVDs. <laughs> Okay, well, that brings us round to our fourth and final fact of the show today. Um, what have you got for us, Chris? Yep, uh, Boris Johnson remains legally married to an oil painting of two dogs having sex. Okay, so <laughs> so the U the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is is quite well known for his slightly dysfunctional marital past, having <laughs> two two spouses but rumoured to have various mistresses over the years and no official source being able to divulge how many children he actually has. And officially, and I've looked this up, uh, I, I'm going to quote this from Google, it says, at least six, 
And that's genuine. <laughs> that's how many children he has, at least six. And that's the official response. The fact that is that this fact is almost unsurprising at this point. So Boris Johnson has between six and an infinite number of children. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they didn't say between six and nine or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's like the genuine Google response when you say, how many children has Boris Johnson got? It says at least six. <laughs> and I love that. So, but the, the surprising thing is that this fact is unsurprising. So let's just get on and look at this uh, this this weird thing that you've brought to the table, Chris. How did he get himself into this little mess? This was during his days at the Burlington Club, which for anybody who doesn't know, is uh, the Oxford University Dining Club for very wealthy students. A lot of uh, like wealthy and well-to-do people have gone through the Burlington Club, including Johnson, David Cameron, other members of the Conservative Party including other members of the, you know, British nobility, etc. So one night, apparently, Boris saw this particular painting of two dogs having sex in the house of another member of the club. He said he loved it, uh, to which another member replied, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? You know, standard bands. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm sure our listeners above school leaving age have all been on the receiving end of this fun, innocent and... <laughs> obviously rhetorical jibe but but what what did the future prime minister take the question seriously or what well i mean the whole uh, the whole club took it seriously a drunk on expensive wines um high presumably on cocaine and probably under the influence of birth defects from all the incest the boys of the club put on a rather lavish ceremony for boris and the oil painting of two dogs having sex uh, reportedly, it cost in excess of £100,000. Of course it did, of course. <laughs> but it's, again, that's, that sort of lavish expense, uh, given his track record um, during his uh, political years so far, is absolutely no surprise to any of us. So um, you might as well have said, actually, thinking about it, you might as well have said it was a real dog couple that he's married to, and I'd believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa there, Piper. I mean, you're talking there about polygamy, which is illegal. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's let's not get uh, let's not get sidetracked with uh, with with. Let's not accuse Boris Johnson of anything untoward like that. <laughs> <laughs> so really, it was just some childish, silly, childish skit that they did at university. Then, I mean, yes. Although to this day, the marriage has not been annulled or ended through divorce if, by some chance, Boris actually consummated the union. Right. With the oil painting of two dogs having sex. Yes. Uh, Do we know if he... Do do we have any evidence on whether or not he did consummate the union? No, although it is known that the painting still hangs in Boris's bedroom. So make of that what you will. I unfortunately have made of that what I will in my head, and I wish that I had not. Thank you for that lovely mental image. Um, So has the Prime Minister ever been, has this ever been brought up in interviews at all? Has he ever been challenged on it? No. I mean, after all, he's surrounded by other Burlington Club members, and many of whom attended the ceremony. So if anybody did try to challenge him on it, he could have all his mates to back him up. Uh, bear in mind as well 
This is the guy who called black people Piccadillys, uh, Muslim women letterboxes, and gay men bumboys, and was still elected prime minister of a developed country. So I don't think his marriage to an oil painting of two dogs having sex will really do him any harm at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a lot of leaders of the UK have, as you say, come through the the Bullingdon Club. They are, as they like to shorten it, bullies. Have there been any other instances of future parliamentarians marrying inanimate objects? Uh, Not marrying, no. But um, several members do or have had unusual relationships uh, with inanimate objects. Jeremy Hunt reportedly had a brief uh, tryst with a bust of Karl Marx, which caused some controversy given his political readings. George Osborne has been known to take financial advice from an antique umbrella. And, of course, famously, there was the dead pig that David Cameron fucked. Okay, that's it. You've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton. And you can contact the podcast on Twitter at C Cubes. And that's C as in S-double-E. Okay, great. Well, thanks for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't, honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Bye. Bye. Chris? Yeah? Hello. 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 <laughs> have you uh, have you have you found a a new IT person yet? You know what, Piper, we have. Whoa, really? Oh, this is exciting. Yeah. Uh, his name's Kyle. Uh, not the same Kyle as the last Kyle, I don't think, at least. And you know what, Piper? He's actually managed to get us on Twitter. <gasps> really? Yep. Uh, you can now follow. The Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research on Twitter at Muin Photorere. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll all remember that. I don't think you even need, need to expand on how you how you spell that. To be honest, I think that's great. But just 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 in case um, there is someone at, at home that doesn't quite understand what that means, would you like to uh, would you like to let us know what what that means? Yeah, it's Muin Photorere. Basically, uh, Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research wouldn't fit in the Twitter handle box on the computer. So we had to just take the first two letters from each word. Ah, see, this new Kyle is very clever. Um, He is. He's a a lovely man who assures me he's never even... You know what? He came to the interview. I asked him if he'd ever eaten a sandwich. I know what he said, Piper. What did he say? He said, what's a sandwich? Oh, it's like a match made in heaven. And I hired him on the spot. <laughs> <laughs>